A couple years ago, uh, a few years ago now, we did a Mother's and Father's Day sermon, and, and I called them Earth Needs Moms and Earth Needs Dads. I don't know if you remember that. It was after the movie had come out about Earth Needs Moms, and, and we talked about how our, in, in our culture we've sometimes negated or reduced the influence of parents and the influence of parents on their family. And, and that's, that's true a little bit of moms, but we talked about, especially for dads, that's been true in media, that's been true in all kinds of messaging. But it's been really interesting. The last year I'm seeing more and more studies that are coming out, secular studies and Christian studies, that are realizing, wait a minute, dads are important, right? Dads are foundational to a family and foundational to so much that goes on in a kid's life. And there's studies about education and that kids do better in school if there's a mom and a dad present. And there was a study that I was listening to this week on one of the um, podcasts that I listened to that was talking about dads and spiritual formation. Dads and whether a child sticks with the faith into adulthood that he was taught or she was taught as a child. And the stats are really interesting. I want to start with this and, and not to, to beat us down, but to remind us and affirm dads just how important you are. Um, this was done actually in Switzerland, a study that was uh, published in 2000, so it's a little bit older now, but the stats are really interesting. And they, they, they asked questions like, Do mom, does mom attend church regularly? Does dad attend church regularly? And then they followed the kids that did. And they found that if mom and dad attended church regularly, the stat was that 40% of their kids, around 40% of their kids, attended church regularly. Some beyond that attended sporadically, but a regular, committed, um, integrated attender, 40%. And some might be saying, well, wow, that's, what about the 60%? And that, that is troubling. And, and be, having done youth ministry for so long, that was something that we got to see firsthand. It's hard. But 40% if mom and dad attend regularly. If, if mom attends regularly and dad doesn't or attends irregularly, what do you think the percentage of kids that stay with the faith is? What was that? Ten. You're way high. Two to three percent. Think about that for a minute. Dads, you have an oversized influence on your kids, a right-sized influence on your kids. What about if only dad brings them and mom doesn't? Or mom's not part of church, but, but dad's regular and committed and bringing the kids. It's in the high 60% of kids that stay at the church. Now, now before all the moms start staying home, <laughs> for the sake of your kids, I know when I heard the stats, I'm like, that is not right. And, and, and the podcast is on Stand to Reason's podcast. And, and Alan Schleeman, who was here, was actually hosting the guy and, and, and he questioned it as well. And, and the, the gentleman had written a book about these stats and really delved into them, and he had gone much deeper than we are this morning. He said, it's not, it's not that mom shouldn't come. The thing is, when mom doesn't come, it, you, you've narrowed your scope to dads that are truly committed to the church, right? Because if dad's willing to bring the kids, even if mom doesn't, he's, he's right there with the teacher. I mean, so it's, it's not a forced thing. In the stats, what happened is a lot of times when mom and dad are coming, dad is grudgingly coming or he's forced to come. And so that brings that stat down because what they found is that the primary indicator of whether a child stays with the church and stays with the faith into adulthood between mom and dad was dad. That was the primary indicator. Moms, it's not saying you're important because they found that that moms are reinforcing and, and give a depth to the faith and a consistency to the faith. But if God isn't important to dad, it's really hard for God to be important to the kids. I I just have to stop right here and say, we are so blessed and I am so blessed to serve in a church like Village. Where I look out and I see as many men as women. And I see men leading their families. And I'm going to get emotional here because there's some things that get me emotional and it's a man stepping up to lead his family. And to lead spiritually. And we see that in an incredible rate of, of our kids getting married and staying in the church and raising their families. And that primarily is because of you, dads. Thank you for that. And I thank my father 
for his commitment to a church that was never questioned. I grew up getting up early every Sunday morning at a, at a different church. It was over in Fountain Valley, small church, and our family was responsible for setting up church. We met at a high school. And so we got up early every morning and took our station wagon. I think that's how we got volunteered. Um, took our station wagon to the storage unit, got all the stuff for church, came and put it together, and dad was leading the way. Mom was right there with him, but dad was saying, this is, this is what we do because we're serving God. We love God. This is part of who we are as a family. And that set the tone for even where I am today and, and a heart for service and a heart for ministry that I credit to my parents and my dad. Thank you for that, dad. Today, we honor dads. And we want to come to Scripture. And my goal today, just like Mother's Day, is to give us some tools and especially give you dads tools for how to instruct your family spiritually, for how to take God's Word and apply it to your family because you are that important. You are are vital to your children's spiritual health. And so on Mother's Day, we started with the first half of Romans 12. Today, we're going to take the second half of Romans 12. And and it's not specifically that the first nine verses were about moms and the the next few verses are about dads. But I'm, I'm really trying to just address family on these two Sundays, take some time away from our other studies, and address how do we build healthy families. And if you remember, when we talked on Mother's Day, we asked the question, which verses apply to the family? You know, do we have to find a verse that says, this is how you parent? Or a verse that says, love one another, might that apply to the one another's in my home? Might that apply to the family? And so we said, all of the verses that say how to act apply in the family. In fact, they start in the family, right? That's the test bed, the lab that God has given us to work these things out. And if we can't do it in the family, it is really hard to do it outside of the family. And so we talked and we started to go through Romans 12, understanding that, that there are a variety of ways a text can be applied. There's one interpretation, one meaning of the text, but then that can be applied in different areas of our life. And so when I, when I hear a command like hold others in high esteem, that's going to look different at work than it is at church. And it's going to look different at home, but the command is the same. The application of that varies depending on where we're at. And so this morning, we want to continue Romans 9 and continue just an exercise together, Romans 12, of taking a passage that is primarily, understand this, primarily about church life and how to relate with each other, and in this passage, how to relate with non-Christians as well, but realize that also applies in the home. How do I relate with my wife? Those same principles apply. How do I relate with my children? Those same principles apply. If you look around, if you have family here, just sort of catch eyes with your family. (laughs) Okay, that was a little creepy. (laughs) They're your one another's, okay? They're your first one another's. Now, we're all the one another's, but that's who we want to start practicing these things with. So turn with me to Romans 12. Romans 12. We're going to pick it up at verse 9. And, and I know some of you have already looked at the notes and are saying that your Father's Day lunch is shot because there's 10 points. Understand it's going to be quick because this is what Paul is doing in this section of Romans. When we get to verse 9, Paul switches from his normal type of teaching and explaining and he gets to what we would call staccato commands. And 9 through the end of the chapter, 9 through 21 is just command, 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 command. And so we want to sort of approach it that way. We want the word to inform how we teach a passage. And so we want to go through these quickly. And and a number of the commentators felt like this was a a tool that was used in the the Greek understanding to try to bring weight to the subject and to, to almost overwhelm, but in a good way, the person with the truths that are here. Because it just comes and comes and comes. Now, you may, you may be tempted to, in our Western mindset, we want to link everything together, right? And say, okay, how does A apply to B and C? That can't happen in this section. In fact, every single commentary I read said, don't do that. Because it's just a variety of commands, usually pulling from different sources. Some of these are pulled from Proverbs. Most of them are pulled from Jesus' teaching. And so Paul is just bringing all these in, and he's painting a picture of what a godly Christian looks like. 
And, and so he's hitting it from as many different angles as he can to make it a 3D picture. And he says, this is what a godly person looks like. And so out of that, we can see as we apply it and practice applying it to the family today, that these apply to marks of a godly family. These are things that should be indicators of the spiritual health of our homes, both in how we treat each other and in how we treat other families and other people as a family. And so we want to to jump into that. This is the the nitty-gritty of the sacrifice life that we saw in verses 1 and 2. And so it's it's created to, to give a reaction. I put the first four points from, from Mother's Day there, that a godly family makes their relationship with God the family priority. They aren't full of themselves. They foster opportunities to explore and use their spiritual gifts. They abhor evil and hold to good. And so now we come to, to verse 9, and we read the very first phrase, let love be genuine. Now this might be a summary of the rest of the chapter. It might be a standalone command. It, it probably is both. But let love be genuine. And, and we see in these two verses, point number five in your notes, a godly family loves each other well. A godly family loves each other well. And he's going to define what that means a little bit. The first one is let love be genuine without hypocrisy. Some of your translations say love must be sincere. And it's a, it's a call out to hypocrisy in our relationships. Now there's a difference between I love you and I love you. Right? I said the same words, but there's a difference. And, and the word here was used in, in acting, in play acting. And so it's playing a role, pretending like you love someone would be love that isn't genuine. And it's saying your love needs to be true from the heart. Not a forced I love you, but a genuine I love you. And that's the goal. Now, I understand realistically in our homes, we don't always feel it every day. There are days, and and it may not have anything to do with how the other person has treated you. It may be you just had bad pizza the night before. But there are times we don't feel the love for each other. And this is not saying, well, if it's not genuine, I don't have to show it. No, it's saying you get on your knees and you beg God for his mercy and for, for his forgiveness and say, give me a genuine love for my family. And love, we've talked about, is a, is a verb, it's an action, it's a decision, a choice. And so we intentionally say, I am going to love, not because I have to, but because this is what God wants me to do. And so we confront the things in our lives that keep us from being loving. And we strive for genuine love for each other. Now in a home with kids, if you have little kids... That might mean calling out your kids sometimes. Um, oftentimes we call out our kids on their apologies. You know, you're not really sorry. <laughs> you're not even close to being sorry. Okay, maybe we don't say that. But we try to instruct them and, and bring them through. Of course, not Mark. Um, <laughs> we do want to welcome our new seventh graders in today. <laughs> um, okay. But, but we, because apologies should be a sign of sincere love and genuine love. We have to be trained to do this. We have to train ourselves to do it. We have to train our families to do it. And it does mean calling out an ungenuine love, but then showing, okay, what does genuine love look like? In verse 10, we see another aspect of love. The first part of 10a, love one another with brotherly affection. And so it's a committed love. In the NIV, it says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And that that idea is this commitment, this family commitment to each other. Just for those of you that love all the different words of love, um, in verse 9, that's agape love. In verse 10, that's phileo love. And uh, most of the recent studies say there's actually not that much of a difference between them in the New Testament. Um, But phileo tends to be this family tie love. And if you remember when we talked about family, in their culture, the sibling relationship was the closest relationship because it was blood. It was closer than even your marriage relationship. And so when we read things like brotherly love, that means something. It's not like, hey, bro, how you doing? No, this is you're my family. And so when Jesus says, or when, when the Holy Spirit through Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection, 
And, and the word he uses there is have brotherly love for each other with brotherly affection. And he's, he's using that same word, a, a forms of it a couple times. He's saying, think of yourselves as family. Be committed to the family. One author said, Paul conceives of the church as a family that is even closer than one's biological family. For all are united to Christ as brothers and sisters. And so loving well means to have a genuine love. It means to have a committed brotherly love. Now, now this can be a challenge because we didn't always get along with our siblings growing up. Even as adults, sibling relationships can be challenging or they can be beautiful. And, and so sometimes we take that baggage, which is a stained relationship from this fallen world, not the way God intended it to be, and we bring that into our, our church relationships. And, and we can't do that because what God is saying here is to have a commitment and a beautiful relationship with your brothers and sisters. So moms, dads, we start by teaching this at home again. We, we start by teaching them to love each other. Even if they, they will fight and chafe against that, teach them to love each other. It's there. They, they, it's under the surface and it's masked by sometimes the little bickering, but it's there. And I did get permission to use this one. Um, I, there, were one there was one time where, where some people were picking on one of my kids and one of the others of my kids went and, and stood up for him and said, no, no, you can't do that. That's my brother. Only I get to do that. And, and, but you saw the protection. You saw the brotherly love. Okay, maybe masked with some, some other <laughs> relational things. But we're to love each other with this phileo brotherly love, like a close friend. How many of your dads proved it by their commitment to the family? The long hours. You know, you're, you're stranded by the side of the road. You can call dad usually. doesn't matter if he's two hours away. He'll, he'll get in his car or truck and start driving. That's an example, dads, of the family commitment that you're showing how to love well. That we're to have for each other in the family, but also in the church. One successful man, when he's talking about the commitment of his dad, and, and I, I love this story. He said, the greatest gift I ever received was a gift I got one Christmas when my dad gave me a small box. Inside was a note saying, son, this year I will give you 365 hours, an hour every day after dinner. It's yours. We'll talk about what you want to talk about. We'll go where you want to go. We'll play what you want to play. It will be your hour. And this man, now a man said, my dad not only kept his promise, he said, but every year he renewed it. And it's the greatest gift I ever had in my life. I am the result of his time. Wow, that's convicting. That's convicting. But dads, you're so important to the, to the, the raising of our families, to the raising of our kids. That's the kind of commitment we're, we're called for in the body of Christ as well. Somebody calls up and needs something that needs to be filled like that because we're family. We're brother and sister. Fathers, sons, daughters, moms. And we show that commitment. So a godly family is committed to loving each other well. We see at the end of 10, the next one, and we'll, we'll start going through them a little quicker, that we're a godly family outdoes each other in honoring each other. They outdo each other in showing honor to each other. And you see that next phrase, it, the point is the phrase, outdo one another in showing honor. And the, the meaning of honor is to put a price, a high price on, to value. And so what he's saying is part of the one another here is to put a high value on the other person. And, and think about that in our homes. Do I value every member of my home highly? Do I respect them? And, and what does that look like? If you think about valuing someone highly, you're going to pay attention to them. You're going to know their interests. You're going to listen to them because their opinion matters. It's of high value. You're going to treat them well and polish them and treat, it as a, treat them as a valuable possession. 
And yes, we're to do that with each other as a church, but do we do that in the home? Or do we go home and let down our guard and forget to value each other? Forget to care and do those special things. And so we put an importance on other people. This is, this is probably taken in some ways from Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's how you honor each other. That's how you put a value on each other. Now, this is one of those things that you can have a lot of fun with in your family. You, so, so I have a couple of boys, and competition is king, right? And I'm not competitive, but they are. <laughs> Everyone that's played softball with me is like, yeah, right. Um, and so you can turn this into a competition. Um, Pastor Andrew was telling me that some of his friends do this in their home, and they compete to see who can show more honor to the other person. Isn't that cool? Who can... In, in find creative ways to say, I honor you, I value you. And it can be little things. And today we're honoring dads and we're going to have candy bars, giant candy bars, by the way, out, out there in the breezeway for all the dads. And then for everybody, we're going to have root beer floats because you just have to have those for Father's Day. Uh, root beer floats in the gym. And it's just a little thing to honor, but think of doing that in the, in the home. You know, maybe it's it's giving, you know, for our kids, sometimes they give up the front seat to one of the others. And the, the place of honor. So you take it. That's honoring others above yourself. You know, may, maybe it's pick a family member and get the rest of the family to say, we're going to have a surprise honor day for mom. Or we're going to have a surprise. And, and, and what you're doing is you're training them to start applying these principles at home. And then it can broaden and, and apply to the church family. But we need to outdo one another in showing honor. Have some fun with it. And, and you know, some of you creatives are thinking, I could build this chart and we can use distressed wood and we can do it. Great. But find ways to outdo each other in showing honor. Verse 11 goes on. And again, we're getting these instructions just staccato and quick. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And these three probably go together as a package, all talking about our walk with God. And a godly family, one of their marks is they are eager and excited about pursuing God. They are eager and excited about pursuing God. And you see three phrases in verse 11 there. And and just to unpack those, the first says, do not be slothful in zeal. Basically, my summary of that is don't be lazy spiritually. Don't be lazy. And slothful means to, to be idle, to be lazy, to let things happen. Let spiritual life happen. And it's saying, don't do that. Don't just let your family be spiritual or don't just hope it happens. Don't be lazy spiritually. And zeal is an eagerness. It's a haste, a diligent, an ardent interest in pursuit of something. And so when we think of not being lazy spiritually, Dad, that means to engage spiritually. That means to not just hope your family loves God, but to say, here's some steps I'm going to do to, to, to accomplish that. We're going to have some family worship time. And last year we talked about tools for family worship. And we're going to make sure we do that. And, and, and like we said last year, that can look different at different stages. We went from doing it in the evening to doing it when I had them trapped in the car on the way to school. And, and it, it was great. And we found ways that worked for our schedule. But dad, that's on you. Not that you have to do it all the time, but you lead it and make sure it happens. We don't want to be idle personally in our faith either. See, being lazy spiritually says, you know what? I don't really have to crack my Bible open. Ah, I can pray on Sundays. You know, Pastor Ron and Pastor Andrew, they're going to give me the teaching I need. And my heart is that you basically don't need us. And we're just giving you a shot in the arm to go through your week and study God's Word and see what the Holy Spirit reveals to you. That'd be awesome. And it's happening in so many of your families. George Whitfield, I wanted to put a quote up from George Whitfield. I think I have that done. Thank you. A true faith in Jesus Christ will not suffer us to be idle. No, it is an active, lively, restless principle. I love that use of the word there. It fills the heart so that it cannot be easy till it is doing something for Jesus Christ. 
our walk can't be idle. In fact, we, we, it should be where we can't even rest until we're doing something for Jesus Christ. That's not being slothful and zeal. The next phrase, be fervent in spirit. In your notes, letter B, got fervor. And I should have put this in the got milk font. And, and fervor there is to be enthusiastic, to be excited. And, and there's some debate in, in spirit. Does that mean in our own spirit or does that mean in the Holy Spirit? And, and probably here it's talking about the Holy Spirit, that we're to be, to be fervent, to be excited, to be enthusiastic with what the Holy Spirit is doing in our heart. The word for verb fervent is to be on fire, to be glowing. In fact, one, one author said, really, they would retranslate this, be a glow in the spirit. Now, we don't use a glow a lot, but you get the idea. Um, Apollos, as he was teaching, he was described this way, a teacher that was going around and Priscilla and Aquila ended up helping him understand the faith a little more, but he was on fire for God. And, and that's fervor. And, and again, this isn't something we sit and, and wait and say, okay, when I've got fervor, I'm good to go. No, this is something where we begin to obey God's word and we obey what he wants us to do and the feelings and the emotions are the trailer that follows the train or that follows the car. You've often heard me say, you don't feel yourself into a new way of acting, you act yourself into a new way of feeling by obeying God's word. By praying and say, God, change me. The last one in that, that um, verse, letter C, is a godly family serves God. Serve the Lord. To be at His call. Sometimes this is translated slave. And I know in America we have a different, uh, we have a lot of baggage with that word because it was so unhealthy and so despicable how it was, was put into practice. But for them it was the idea of being a slave slash servant that was completely at the master's call. At, at his will, doing whatever he wants. A, a servant doesn't question the man's master. The servant doesn't set the agenda for the master. He's just ready to do what the master says. And so in this, if we're to apply this to home, are we serving? Are we serving God as a family? And, and I talk with, with couples a lot in, in premarital and we talk about service and the question often comes up is, well, do we serve in his ministry or his gifting or my gifting? And my answer is usually, yeah. Yeah, I, I think we each have to do some things in our primary gifting, what God wants us to do. But then for families, it's really healthy to do some ministry together, even if it's outside of your giftings. Dads, husbands, one of the greatest ways you can invest in your wife is to support her in her gifting and allow her to blossom and allow her to shine. You know, there, you, you've heard me talk about Second Harvest a lot. And I love Second Harvest because kids of all ages are ministering side by side with their parents. And little kids are pulling stuff out and it, it's helpful for the big boxes of stuff because we put the little kids inside and everyone's using their strengths. And, and we're serving together and what you're doing is you're training your kids how to, how to walk with God, how to serve. You're also doing some pretty incredible things for your family too and family dynamics when you serve together. And so Romans 12 in this verse, in verse 11 says, man, we should be on fire for God and we should be serving Him. It's a lifestyle. It's not just an hour or two here or there, but a lifestyle that is always thinking, how can we serve? How can we serve as a family? How can we serve each other as a family? Verse 12 is also three that I would put together. Uh, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And point number eight is they keep their spirits up. A godly family keeps their spirits up, trusting God through difficult times. Rejoicing in hope thinking of a future with God and knowing, having a focus that says this isn't all there is and that can get us through some difficult times. Patient in tribulation. It, it's dad saying we're going to be okay as a family. This is going to be okay because God's got this. God's in control. Let's see what God does. Constant in prayer. And that's the answer to trust, right? If, if we're not going to God in prayer and we're not going quickly, and, and often, there's questions of trust there. 
And so Paul says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. And you're showing how to trust God. Again, dads, I encourage you to take the lead in this. You set the tone. Lead in prayer. You know, we, we, for dads, we want to be the rock, right? Gibraltar, the foundation. This is, this is where you do that. In difficult times, you bring the family back to the truth of God's Word and His character. One of the best ways to apply this in the home is to be diligent in prayer, like that last phrase says. Diligent in prayer. Making sure it's just part of the rhythm of your life. This set, let's pray. Not just before meals, but other times. Let's pray about this. Let's pray about this. Have different people in your family pray because you're training your kids to trust God, to pray. We go on to 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And so point number nine, a mark of a godly home is they have an outward focus to help and include others. They have an outward focus to help and include others. You see the first phrase, contributing to the needs of the saints. And that's being aware to to, to help someone with their needs. You've got to ask what their needs are. You've got to be aware of what their needs are. And, And in the home, the way that you start this is by noticing what other people are doing and helping with their needs, helping with what's going on. Now, if, if you have kids, that can be a great challenge. Now, some of your kids might have a personality that they'll just help anyone. But, but this is something you train to say, no, let's take some time. Let's, let's do one thing a day that helps someone else in this family. Maybe you start there. And you're starting to train to get outside of our own heads, to get our eyes off of ourselves, and to try to put this into practice because a godly family contributes to the needs of others, specifically in the church here. And then the other way we show this is as a family by doing these things. You know, you, you, I, I am amazed that when a need comes up at Village, it is often met before I have a chance to even contact the person. Because, I, I don't know, good gossip happens and, and all that. And, and, and so sometimes I'll hear about a need and I'll talk to the person. Oh, well, so-and-so already filled that. You know, a bag of groceries showed up in my car. This happened. Someone watched my kids for me so I could take care of this. And on and on and on. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And we're teaching our children and we're teaching our homes, our families, how to look out for others. The second part of this, and this is one where I've challenged us so many times to really make this just part of our DNA, seek to show hospitality. Seek to show Hospitality. And, and we've talked about hospitality as not just welcoming someone, but including them, bringing them into family life, saying you're part of this family, and, and, and bringing them into to relationships and friendships. What's really cool, and, and this, is, this is just something that we don't see in English, but that word hospitality, it comes from the same word as brotherly love. It, it, so it's phylloxenia. And the philo is the beginning, which is the, the brotherly love. It has to do with um, coming together as, as a family. But hospitality is the same root, and basically it means bring someone into the family. Isn't that cool? If, if I'm showing hospitality, I'm finding ways to bring them into the family and make them part of the family. Often I say we, we're, we strive to adopt as many as possible. And it's one of the commands. Seek to show hospitality. And so as a family, it's, it's not only doing this for each other, but bringing others in, into our homes or bringing others into our conversations. Helping our kids see outward instead of only inward. Because the flesh only wants to look inward. Number 10, and this really summarizes the rest of the points and I debated, do I keep the rest of the points separate? Do I put them as subpoints under this? But this way it looks like we're going through less points. Number 10, a godly family lives peacefully with others. Lives peacefully with others. And, and in, in verses 14 to 21, the, the focus turns outward to say, how do we have good relationships with other people? How do we maintain peaceful relationships? And by peace, I don't just mean the absence of hostility, but shalom, well-being, a a healthy relationship 
with others. And so we have five subpoints here as we go through each of the verses. And these, sometimes we, when we hear things, we're like, this will preach. And this passage will preach. And I guess that's what we're doing because it's so convicting to how we treat others in and out of the home. And so let these verses weigh on you. In verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And tie that with verse 17. Just look down just a little bit. In verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And these are two that really are dealing with the same topic, and he's inserting them because this is huge. And he's quoting Jesus here, isn't he? Sermon on the Mount, and then the Luke teaching, where Jesus says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And so A, there is a godly family keeps control of their own words and attitudes. And they'll bless even when attacked. And this is hard. That's why Jesus kept repeating it. In fact, we can only do this through the Holy Spirit successfully. Because what is our, what is our normal response when we're attacked or when we're hurt? We either pull out the claws and, and want to attack, or we just put up the walls and just retreat. Right? That's, that's our response to others. Isn't that our response when we're hurt in the home? It is. And, and we've got to get past that. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The word bless is used twice there because it's being pounded into us. Watch your words. Watch your attitudes. Choose to bless the other person. Choose to say good things about the other person. Now we can think, well, you just don't understand some of the things I go through. Persecute, I'm sure that's so much harder now than it was then. You know, as we were leading up to Nero burning Christians in the garden. As we were seeing, as we studied in Corinth, that commerce could only happen if you were willing to do certain pagan practices. No, we don't understand persecution. So we can't ever say, oh, I can't do that. Because this was given to a people that were far more persecuted than we are. And I know, I know culture is going that direction and it's frustrating and it's angering. doesn't matter. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Stephen is a great example of this in Acts 7, 60. He's, he's being stoned. And at the verge of death, he falls to his knees and cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. This is an amazing principle to put into practice. Moms, dads, it takes time and it takes consistency. This is not natural. But if we can train our kids and if we can train our homes to say, we are not going to lash out at each other. We're going to watch our words. We're going to watch our attitudes. In fact, if someone hurts me at home, I'm going to turn around and genuinely, love must be genuine, genuinely say something kind to them and bless them. And it'll blow, blow your, the roofs off your homes. You know, your, your kids start bickering or, or someone says something spiteful to the other person. Now, we usually focus on the person that said the spiteful thing, right? And, and we should. There's, correction needs to happen there. But what if we turn to the other sibling and say, okay, I want you to say something really, really kind about them. And maybe pray that, that something good will happen to them today. After you, you, you spend the 30 minutes convincing them to actually do it, it, it'll be an amazing thing. Because we're starting to really put into practice God's Word. Because a godly family keeps control of our own words, keeps control of our own attitudes, even when attacked. It's intentionally having a different attitude and acting on it. We go on and the the verses just keep going from here in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. A godly family in their relationships with others, we empathize with others. We empathize. We feel deeply with them. Not just for them, but with them. The first half of that, I got, we, we got that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. Someone's graduated. So we rejoice together. But weep with those who weep. 
This is very reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 12. If one part suffers, all parts suffer. If one part is honored, all parts are honored. And, And the second part, weeping with those who weep requires us to really focus and listen to the other person, to know where they're coming from. As as we studied Mark through the life of Christ, how many times did we see and Jesus had compassion? He felt deeply for them. That's our example. Before we say, oh, this is is my wife's job. No, No, Jesus is our example. And you don't get much more of a man's man. And so... I, we can come and say, well, well, mercy isn't my gift or compassion isn't my gift. It doesn't matter. It's a command. And nothing can be an excuse to not do it. In families, we need to do both of these. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Even if we don't get it. There are times that you will have someone in your family because they're different people come to you and they're just upset about something and you're like, that is no big deal. Okay, first of all, don't say that right then. That just, no, no, don't. But there are times that we don't, it's not a big deal to us and empathy says, I don't care if I, it's not a big deal to me. It is to you and God says to love you and so I'm going to weep with you. I'm going to feel with you. And we need to put this into practice. This kind of empathy. And it requires noticing. It requires listening. And sometimes it just requires being with them. One of my kids was just really upset last night because, because I'm leaving for Israel. And um, so I'm a bad father. No, they, they didn't say that. They're just, they're just really upset. And what, what do you say then? Nothing. You just be with them. Sit there, hand hand over them, and just be with them. Say, I'm really sad too that I'm leaving. I'm excited for Israel. But it was going to be hard. And that was just a precious moment of empathizing with each other. Number 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. Did I mention never? I would highlight that, bold that. Let us see there. They, they put others above self to create harmony. They put others above self to create harmony. And this is again reminiscent of, of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Because the harmony there means to set your mind on another to focus on another, to be of the same mind, but because you're focusing on another. Think about this. Think about harmony, how it works. Some of you sing, and, and we had some beautiful harmony. Thank you, worship team, this morning. Now, in, in harmony, who leads, the melody or the harmony? The melody, right? You have to have the melody first, and then how does harmony happen? That person listens to the person singing melody and just sings their own notes, whatever they want. No, no, no. That person listens to the person singing melody and intentionally picks notes that correspond with that, right? Now, melody can't, or harmony can't lead the way. It doesn't work. It's just bizarre. And, and so what a great picture of setting your mind on another, which is what this word means. Harmony says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about you and how can I come into your world? How can I fit with you? How can I create peace with you? And that's why do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly goes with that. We've got to empty ourselves to do that. I don't always have to sing melody. Well, I do because I can't sing harmony and it's just really bad. No, it, but in, in life, we don't have to re- always sing melody. We don't have to always be in charge. We don't have to always be the one leading the way. In fact, good relationships, there's a mutuality that we are coming together and setting our mind on another. This is true in the church. This is true in the home. Listen to the melody. Sing a part that makes the melody more beautiful. We have to give up, give up on ourselves. Do not be haughty. Do not associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And this is an issue that I think more than most 
can kill church relationships because it deals with the thought, I am right. My way of doing it is right. My way of parenting is right. My way of teaching is right. My way of driving home at a certain time from church is right. And we kill our relationships on the altar of being right. And God's Word says, never be wise in your own sight. Literally, don't always think you're right. Don't always think you've got it down. And we struggle with this because it's my opinion, so it has to be right. You know, sometimes I I tell people, always be thinking, I could be wrong in this. That'll change how you speak. That'll change how you approach others. I might be wrong. And then we develop a humility. It's interesting, in in 2014, a poll by YouGov um, was given to Americans of how intelligent do they think they are compared to the average person. 4% of Americans think they are less intelligent than the average person. I don't know if you're a math whiz or not. No, no, 50% are are less intelligent than the average person. That's the way averages work. 4% said that they thought they were less intelligent than the average person. Now, I know. Who's going to admit that? Yeah, I'm stupid. Um... In fact, far most, or the, the, the greatest majority didn't even think they were average. They felt they were smarter than the average. Okay, just, just, just look inside right now. Don't be thinking of the person next to you. Look inside right now. Isn't that pretty true? And it's toxic to our relationships. It's toxic in the home. It's toxic in the church. And so in the home... We want to be careful how we word things. To not be so dogmatic unless it's biblical truth. To realize I could be wrong. To not elevate opinions to godhood status. Never be wise in your own sight. We need to hit the last last few. 13. A godly family, a mark of a godly family, they do whatever they can to resolve conflict and be at peace with all. One of my favorite verses, and and one that I know many of you cling to at times. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And and we automatically think of of our broader relationships and our broader friendships and and making sure that we are at peace with those. And that's the primary thing that it's talking about. But bring that into the home. That means we don't let things fester. We don't let things brew. We, we deal with things. And really, there, there's two aspects to living peaceably with all. It's, it's number one, resolve things. Number two, don't cause drama. That, that's that's a, just a good principle for not, or for creating peace at home. So we resolve things. We, we don't let things persist without being dealt. We don't hold on to an unforgiving attitude and to bitterness. That destroys relationships. In, in, in marriage counseling, premarital counseling, some of you know I, I often say no bricks. No bricks, right? And a brick is just something that's unresolved between us. And eventually the bricks get high enough where you can't see each other and the relationship is gone. And so you be diligent to take away every brick, to forgive, to resolve it. Man, if, if there are things in the body of Christ and someone that we have unresolved issues with, that is sin. We have to do everything we can to make sure that doesn't happen. Now, I know the other person we can't control. And we we have no control of whether they'll respond. And that's why he says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And finally, the last one, they release hurtful situations to God knowing that he will take care of it. Mark of a godly family, they release hurtful situations to God knowing that He will take care of it. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Don't take revenge. Don't take matters into your own hands. But leave it to the wrath of God. Interestingly, the, the, the wording there, and you'll see that in some of your translations, says leave room for the wrath of God. And the implication is, is if I take it into my own hands and try to deal with it and make that person suffer or at least feel the pain a little bit, I'm actually stopping God from working in their heart. 
and stopping the work of God. And so this has to deal with revenge, but don't think revenge like the movies. Think of it as a, a bitter spirit wanting to make that person pay. An unforgiving spirit is what this is talking about. And so forgiveness is, is in a nutshell, giving things to God and saying, God will handle it. I don't have to. I, the newsflash of the day is he's better at it than you. He makes a better Holy Spirit than you do. He convicts better than you do, than I do. And so we don't have to take revenge. It doesn't have to be an eye for an eye because we have to trust God. And he goes on to say, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's my job. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are marks of a godly home. They're marks of a Christian, but as we apply them to our homes... How can we make sure that these are indicators in our home? And this is a list you can go back to, maybe post in your house, talk through with your family, talk through with your kids. They're over in Kids Men right now. And say, this is what we want our our home to be about. And when we start to take every passage and say, how can I apply this to every area of my life? It is a beautiful thing. Because one of the things that I kept thinking through as we studied this is God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, are such a perfect example of every one of these. People sinned against God, rebelled against God. And what does He do? He pursues in love and sends His Son to die in our place. What an example of blessing those that persecute you of moving beyond and giving opportunity for reconciliation, giving opportunity for peace. Praise you for being a perfect father. Pursuing us and giving us a way to have restored relationship with you, Lord God. Giving us your son who died for our sins in our place. Taking the punishment so I don't have to, so you don't have to. Lord, thank you for that gift. Lord, help us to to follow that example and to build strong, godly homes for the dads here to stand up and take the lead in that, for us to band together and do that, Lord, and we can see the fruit that comes from godly families. Lord God, thank you for our dads, for the gift that they are. In Jesus' name.